Hello, everyone. Welcome to Fit Body Happy Joints. My name is Shannon. Today's episode is with Dr. Audrey Gaskins. In this episode, we talk about reproductive health and fertility. And this conversation is not just about fertility. So even if you are not trying to conceive, I want you to listen to this episode because I think a lot of this can apply to all of us. And I think our fertility is such a sign of our overall health. So even if you are past the years of fertility in your pre-menopausal, post-menopausal, I still think it's important to listen to this episode because you're still affected by the same environmental and lifestyle factors as someone who is trying to conceive. So we talk about that a little bit in today's podcast. We focus mostly on fertility, but I think that this conversation can really be applied to everyone. And I thought it was really interesting. Um, we also talk about how certain environmental factors are potentially disrupting your endocrine system and accelerating things like menopause. So very interesting. Dr. Audrey is very concise and informed and very brilliant. I'm going to give her intro in here in just a moment. You're going to be like, wow, very impressed. So she is actually in a, a scientific advisor for Deveras, which Deveras is a online product that's designed to help women with fertility. And they reached out to me because, um, one of the, one of the, the ladies that works at Deveras is an EFL member and they wanted us to partner with them and do workouts on their product, which we plan to do. So we're, we're giving them a custom workout an Evlo workout just because she was like, it matches so well. Your philosophy matches so well with our philosophy of taking care of your body and improving fertility. So we're doing a specific workout for them, but they introduced me to Dr. Audrey, who is one of their advisors and Dr. Audrey creates content for Doveris. She's their, their scientific advisor. So if you are struggling with fertility, this could be a resource for you. And I'll put the link uh, for their website in the show notes below, but please know that they're not sponsoring this podcast. It just was a really good fit. I don't, we don't get sponsors for our podcast and nobody pays us. This is all just things that I believe in and that I want to share. So Dr. Audrey Gaskins is an assistant professor in the Department of Epidemiology at Emory. She earned her doctorate degree in nutrition and epidemiology from Harvard, and she went to Duke for undergrad and studied engineering. So she is very bright, very smart, and as a reproductive and environmental epidemiologist, Dr. Gaskins' research uses creative study designs and methodologies to advance the science in the area of environmental, dietary, and lifestyle influences on human reproduction. Her research, which includes 150 papers, over 150 papers, has been cited more than 3,500 times. So she's very respected in this industry and she's very decorated with lots of prestigious awards. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Audrey. Welcome, Dr. Audrey. I am so excited. This is a topic that we haven't gotten into on the podcast yet and yet so many people, so much of our audience has asked about it. So I'm really excited to have an expert such as yourself to talk about some of these things. It's great to be here. Yay. Well, let's get into it. So tell us about your focus as far as fertility, as far as fertility, what do you focus on and who do you kind of work with? Sure. Uh, so very broadly, my research is focused on diet, lifestyle, and environmental exposures and how those influence reproductive health in men and women. 
And my research really takes a life course approach. So focusing on exposures that your mother had when they were pregnant with you, all the way to kind of current exposures that you have in your adult or young adult life. Um, Most of my work is focused on fertility. So among couples that are trying to get pregnant, what are the factors in their adult life that are associated with longer time to pregnancy or decreased success of infertility treatments. And so again, that's really kind of the bulk of my research. And then within environmental exposures, um, I focus a lot on air pollution and endocrine disrupting chemicals. Okay. Interesting. So this can go all the way back to our mothers. (laughs) And fathers. Sorry, I should say that as well. Yes, there are paternal influences, but there's just not as good data to study it yet. (laughs) Interesting. And that's something that obviously we can't do anything about at this point. So you work with like, okay, what are the changes we can make today right now so that you can increase your chance of fertility? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think that's one of the most exciting parts about setting fertility endpoints is that a lot of them have shorter term time windows of susceptibility. Um, So a great example is like in men, spermatogenesis is approximately a 72 72 day window. And so new sperm are regenerated every 72 days. And so, again, it kind of presents this nice opportunity to say, okay, if we make a lifestyle, dietary or environmental change, will we see downstream effects in two months? Really? What about women? Is it, does that process take a little longer for women? Yeah, it is a little longer in women. Um, So unlike men, we're born with all the eggs that we have. Uh, We don't have the ability to generate new eggs um, at this point in the state of science. Um, And so, yes, it's a lot longer timeframe. That being said, like the period from when a follicle goes from kind of the pre-antral phase all the way through to just before it's about to be ovulated, that's roughly around three to six months. And so again, in the broader scope of things, like relatively short-term timeframe. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the biggest players as far as improving for, let's go like lowest hanging fruit. Like if you're, yeah. if you have someone that comes to you, it's like, what is the low hanging fruit that someone can do to improve their fertility and women and then in men as well? Yeah. I mean, the lowest hanging fruit is sexual activity. That's by far the biggest <laughs> predictor. Um, so I'll say that. Sorry, ladies, you got to do that. <laughs> <laughs> it seems obvious, but we've done studies of couples trying to get pregnant without medical assistance and there is quite a range of sexual activity within couples. And I'm sure this isn't that surprising, but this is specifically within couples trying to get pregnant um, who are participating in our studies knowingly. Um, And the more sex you have, the quicker you become pregnant. Um, There are, of course, you know, instances where that's not true, but on average, that's the case. Um, In terms of diet, lifestyle, environmental factors, you know, the biggest thing I recommend, the easiest change is taking a folic acid supplement. And that's, you know, you're always going to get your standard dose of folic acid and like a prenatal vitamin, which a lot of women are taking. Um, But our research has really shown benefits of taking above the recommended daily amount. So instead of the 400 micrograms, taking at least 800 to 1000 micrograms. That's a pretty easy change um, because, again, it's just a supplement. Um, yeah, that's the first one. Um, the second one, you know, from there, the changes get a little bit harder. 
their, you know, dietary changes like seafood, we consistently see that couples, both men and women who consume more fish um, and other kind of seafoods like crustaceans, they have shorter time to pregnancies, increased success with IVF and other fertility treatments. Um, and it's at a pretty low level. So consuming at least two to three times per week. But again, in the U.S., it's not that common to consume consume seafood at those frequencies. Really? That is so interesting. I'm a big fan of, if you follow me on Instagram, those listening know that I'm a big fan of sardines. <laughs> I eat sardine. yeah. I eat this like sardine salad. It's so good. I eat it like three or four times a week. And yeah, sar- sardines are great from an environmental sustainability standpoint as well. So you're kind of killing two birds with one stone. <laughs> yes. I love to hear that. And they're like a superfood. Yeah. Like it's, it's great for lots of, cause of the yeah. omegas and things like that. Um, so good to know that, uh, just another plug for my sardines. I swear I'm not getting paid by big sardine. <laughs> I don't even know if there is like a big sardine company. No. Which no. There's not. There is not. Let me know if you find them. <laughs> they should definitely contact me because I'm the biggest proponent of sardines. I love my sardines. Yeah. Okay. So eating fish, obviously like more sexual activity is number one, um, improving diet fish. Are there other things, uh, the folic acid, do you have a folic acid uh, supplement that you recommend? No. And honestly, it, it's, it's really pretty simple. Like, you know, I choose a brand that you trust, but it doesn't have to be an expensive brand. Um, you know, we get commonly asked about other forms of folic acid, ones that you know, might be better absorbed. And, you know, it's possible that some women might benefit from those kind of unique formulations. So people with specific genotypes that um, limit their absorption of synthetic folate, but on average, most women would be totally fine with just a standard 800 microgram folic acid supplement. Okay, great. So let's say men and women are doing these things. What is kind of the next step as far as improving fertility? Like, what do you look at it a little deeper if they're already doing those things? Yeah. So the environmental exposures, I haven't mentioned yet because those can be harder to control. Um, so air pollution is a great example. Um, we have limited control over our ambient exposure. Um, we live where we live because of where we work and, you know, a lot of different factors. And so um, we know that like when we find that air pollution levels are associated with increased risk of infertility and other kind of adverse reproductive outcomes, you know, our message is not you should move. Um, but, you know, it is challenging to say like what women can do to and men to decrease their exposure. Um, you know, when we were looking for a house, for example, I didn't want to live near a major roadway because that's a big source of pollution, um, particularly nitrogen dioxide and fine particulates, which are some of the big players in terms of like both short-term and long-term health effects. If you do live near a major roadway, you know, we recommend keeping your windows and doors closed, particularly during rush hours or other kind of heavily trafficked times. If you live in an area that has pretty, pretty big swings in air quality, so the Pacific Northwest would be one example with like wildfires. Again, just being aware of the air quality and, you know, if the level, you know, if, if it's poor, then potentially thinking about investing in an air filter so that you would decrease your exposure to these pollutants at an indoor level. Um, but it's it's definitely more challenging. Same thing when it comes to the endocrine disrupting chemicals, they're in a lot of 
plastic material and plastic is so pervasive, right? We interact with plastic everywhere. And so it becomes this challenge of giving people advice, but not overwhelming them. Um, And so kind of taking baby steps. So things like don't microwave your food in plastic containers, um, you know, decreasing the amount of cosmetics you use or being very picky about the types of cosmetics you use um, and knowing what the best ability, what isn't, what ingredients are in them. Um, So for example, like scents are are usually um, a good indication that chemicals have been put in it um, that could potentially have you know, effects on fertility and other reproductive outcomes. So avoiding scented products is always kind of a good recommendation. Avoiding plastic material as much as possible. Again, a good general recommendation. What about, oh my gosh, I have so, that was excellent. I have so many follow-up questions. (laughs) So with the cosmetics, I'm a big makeup girl. I love my makeup and I love my products. Um, are there some clean makeup brands that you recommend just kind of off the top of your head? It's so hard. Um, you know, this is not something that I like keep up to date on. And it's mm-hmm. so challenging because it's really hard to tell without looking really deep into their products. You know, what is just greenwashing, like coming across as being good and environmentally yeah. friendly versus what actually is in their products. There are um, some apps like on your phone that have a better database that can kind of give you an indication. So things like Detox Me or the EWG's app, um, those are good resources. Again, if people are, are you know curious about um, you know some of the more common products, but again, the cosmetic industry is com- constantly coming up with new things and it's hard to just constantly stay on top of each product they put out. I think that's a good rule of thumb though. Like what you said is again, just start somewhere. So like start with the fragrance fragrances and like ditch that, try to do less plastic. If you can, does that go for buying produce that's in plastic and like products that are packaged with, with plastic? Yeah. So, you know, even something as simple as like, um, milk, it's pumped through plastic tubing the way that we produce it in the U S and during that process, some, plasticizing chemicals like phthalates can leach into the the milk. And so because of that, milk can be a source of these chemicals. That being said, I still drink milk on occasion. Um, You know, I don't don't completely eliminate it. And it's hard to know how much of the phthalates are in your milk versus, you know, some other milk. And again, that's what makes it challenging to make recommendations is because we don't have this hard and fast rule. But yes, if you can decrease your exposure to things that are packaged in plastic, then Yes, that's a good rule of thumb. Um, you know, it's it's less common for fruits and other um, vegetables, you know, produce to to really be vehicles of that. But we think more kind of about like processed foods that are processed with plastic materials that are then put into plastic containers things that you're heating in plastic containers. That yeah, that makes sense. It's like okay, well, let's limit processed foods for other health reasons. But then also I didn't even consider the fact that they're probably processed with plastics. So that's another reason to just try to eat as least processed as possible. 
Yeah, exactly. It's the same with like takeaway food. You know, in general, when you go out to a restaurant, the food tends to be less healthy than if you were to cook at home. But also because they're putting it in this takeaway containers, those containers also have, you know, chemicals in them that could be endocrine disrupting chemicals. So while we try to avoid takeaway and fast food for like diet and nutrition reasons, there's also these potential environmental concerns as well. What are some symptoms that let's say, let's say you're not um, trying to conceive. What are some symptoms that you might have some endocrine disruption? Yeah. I mean, I think the the biggest um, pulse of kind of your reproductive health as a woman is your menstrual cycle. And so mm-hmm. if you have a abnormal menstrual cycle, then that could be a sign that some something's not working correctly um, and that there could be some endocrine disruption going on because your menstrual cycle is um, so dependent on endocrine hormones. Um, and that would be a good time to potentially talk to a doctor about kind of what the cause might be. Same thing if you have really painful periods, um, again, kind of going back to menstrual health, that could be a sign of, you know, a lot of things. You know, one could be like endometriosis, which again is associated with um, lower fertility in a lot of women. Um, but again, kind of making sure that you seek and get the appropriate kind of medical diagnosis and care that can kind of speed things up so that once you're ready to try to conceive, you have a better um, understanding of the condition and ways that you might be able to treat it or ameliorate the symptoms. That makes total sense. So it's like cycle disruptions could be like irregular cycles or too light or too heavy or like heavy PMS, things like that. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I, it, it sounds like hopefully most primary care and OBGYNs are asking these questions at yeah. you know annual or every other year visits. But yeah, I mean, if you're not having regular menstrual cycles, um, it's a good indication that something else might be going on that you should look into. Yeah. Well, what about where does menopause come into play? Because I know, I, I know that maybe women that are, you know, past the years of trying to conceive, but they still can suffer from endocrine disruption. So Mm -hmm. are there symptoms that like perimenopause or postmenopausal women could kind of look at, look for? Yeah. I mean, you know, one concern that we have is that a lot of these environmental exposures are kind of accelerating reproductive aging. So they're, you know, not only impacting fertility and decreasing a woman's probability of getting pregnant, but also shortening that reproductive time window. Um, And that's a real concern considering that more and more couples are delaying pregnancy and wanting to get pregnant later in life. Um, because you're getting closer and closer to that menopausal window. Um, and so, yeah, that that work is really in its infancy. And we're still uh, trying to figure out, you know, what are the factors that promote a later agent menopause, which has generally been associated with better health outcomes. Um, and again, like your menstrual cycle can be a good sign. Um it becomes more erratic as you um, approach menopause and your cycles tend to get shorter as well. Again, these are kind of on average. Um, so yeah, they all relate. It's uh, it's a spectrum. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, even if you're not trying to conceive, it's important to consider some of these things, like cleaning up some of the lifestyle things so that it, not only 
do you have a better, healthier reproductive system, but just systems as a whole? Cause we don't act as like, we're not compartmentalized. Like we are all yeah. one human that each system relies on the other. So I think that's yeah, really exactly. I have, you know, a handful of girlfriends who have frozen their eggs and who want to get pregnant later in life. And again, you know, it's this idea of like, you're, you're going to have the same body five years from now, you know, if anything, it'll just get older. So make sure that you're taking the best care of it possible so that you can have the healthiest pregnancy and healthiest child possible. Yes, absolutely. So I want to shift gears because this is a fitness podcast. I want to mm-hmm. shift gears and talk about exercise. What are your recommendations for women who are trying to conceive um, as far as exercise goes? Yeah. So the biggest one is just moderation. Um, You know, the majority of women in the United States are not getting enough exercise. And so the, you know, in general, our recommendation is try to get at least, you know, 30 minutes a day of moderate to vigorous activity. And that can mean a brisk walk. um, It could mean a run. It could mean anything in between. Um, And at least, you know, 150 minutes per week. We caution against kind of extreme exercise. So exercising to the point of exhaustion um, or exercising to the point that you're so thin that you're not having regular menstrual cycles, right? Your body is clearly saying like something is wrong. Um, But again, like that, that tends to be a smaller subset of the women that um, we deal with or, you know, that, that we come across. It's really more inactivity that's the problem than overactivity, but you can definitely overdo it. Yeah. I think a lot of my audience has been in the point where they've overdone it and struggled with fertility. And we've had a lot of women come to us who have done like our programs all about like gentle exercise, gentler exercise. It's still effective. And so we've had a lot of women come to us and say, like, I transitioned from doing boot camp classes every day to doing your workouts. And like eventually I was able to conceive. And um, yeah. we don't obviously market that because yeah, that's not our lane. But I just think it's interesting. And I wanted to have someone talk about kind of like why that happens. Like why physiologically can someone back off exercise and in, improve their fertility? Yeah. And you know, it's so um it's such an interesting subject too, because like you said, um, People do exercise for a lot of different reasons. One is for obviously weight management, but another big one, particularly among women with infertility is stress management, right? People work out because it's a good store, like stress relief. Um, but I think, you know, when we talk about it's, it's health effects, um, when people are exercising to the point that they're exhausted, it doesn't become health protective. If anything, it can be the opposite. And that's because your ovary and your reproductive organs are not vital organs to the body, right? They're not your heart. They're not your brain. And so when your body decides like, okay, I don't have enough energy to work. Those are the first organs that they're going to shut down. Right. And that's a good thing, right? You don't want your heart, you don't want your brain, your lungs um, to shut off, but your ovary and your uterus and other reproductive um, functions, you know, that can be one of the first signals that, you know, your, your body's not getting enough energy and it's putting too much out. Um, and you'll start to see some signs like abnormal menstrual cycles, um, things like that. That makes total sense. I just did the podcast that I released today was about how like 
exercise as stress management and how too much exercise can compound your stress and make the whole issue worse. And so this um, tidbit is specifically applicable kind of to what I've been talking about recently. What about men? How do you, how does exercise affect their fertility? Yeah. So this one I actually find fascinating because um, we found like in our study where we followed couples who were trying to get pregnant without medical assistance that men who were more frequent exercisers, that was one of the strongest predictors of sexual activity. And we think it's because exercise is pretty strongly linked to testosterone levels in men meaning that when you work out, you get these kind of boosts of testosterone, which is a bit, you know, very important sex hormone um, for sperm production, but also just kind of a lot of um, other important reproductive functions in men. Um, so yeah, exercise is incredibly important in men and specifically kind of weight bearing exercises um, as opposed to kind of the more cardio-based ones. That makes total sense. That makes total sense. Because women also benefit from testosterone as well mm-hmm. reproductively and so weight training for women can that can weight training improve fertility because of the associations with testosterone yeah and we actually think in women too that um a lot of the benefit we see with exercise particularly the weight bearing one is with insulin um regulation and so um, it, you know, it just helps your body uh, metabolize glucose and, and other nutrients um, more efficiently and effectively. Uh, and so we think that that's one big pathway through which exercise is having an impact, a positive impact. That makes total sense. Well, this is really interesting and inspiring me to take a look at my products and take a look at my plastics. <laughs> <laughs> um Anything that we miss that you feel like is important for our audience who is fitness minded and they, you know, want to, I mean, not everyone listening to this is trying to conceive. So some people just want to be overall healthy. Is there anything that we miss that you think is important to touch on? That's a good question. Um, No, I mean, we've touched on kind of the three pillars, which is like diet, wellness, um, and environment and kind of those three together, they interact. They obviously aren't kind of on their own, but that's kind of the three main areas that we think about when we, um, you know, are talking about potentially modifiable, modifiable factors that could Im- impact reproductive health. Um, and all are very important. Some you have more or less control over, of course. Yes. yes. Well, this was very, very interesting. Can you tell all of our listeners where they can find you? Sure. So I'm an assistant professor at Emory University. Um, so you can find me on the Emory webpage or I'm on Twitter and um, Instagram as well. Okay. Amazing. Thank you so much. I am really excited for our audience to hear this conversation. So thank you so much for your time. I know you're very busy. Yes, this is great. Thanks for having me. Of course.